The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Nick Jasinski, a senior writer at Barron's. Today, we're joined by Richard Bernstein, CEO and CIO of Richard Bernstein Advisors, a global macro investment firm with about $16 billion in assets under management. He has more than 40 years of experience on Wall Street, including as the chief investment strategist at Merrill Lynch for many years. Rich is coming to us today from New York. Thank you, everyone, for joining us, and welcome, Rich. It's good to have you back on Barron's Live. Yeah, Nick, thank you for the invitation. Um, so, Rich, you've, you've been on the program before, and I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with you and your work already. But for those who aren't, would you please give us an, an elevator pitch for how your firm invests? I know you primarily use ETFs to express your macro views, and it's less about picking Coke versus Pepsi, right? Absolutely. So, so uh, good morning, everybody. So, um, RBA, Richard Bernstein Advisors, is indeed what's called a macro firm. And as Nick pointed out, that means we know nothing about Coke versus Pepsi. Rather, what we do is we drive the performance of our portfolios using macroeconomic considerations, whether that be size, style, geography, asset allocation, industry sector, something like that. And um, so we're paying a lot more attention to the macro economy than we are to individual companies' microeconomics. Uh, importantly though, Nick, I think we have to draw one distinction between RBA and most macro firms in that we are not, and I can't emphasize this enough, not event-driven. So we're not constantly reacting to macro events. Rather, we are very, very process-driven, very fundamentally driven. Uh, we follow a process that, that was originally designed in the early 1990s. We're now on sort of generation six or seven of that, but we follow the process, really come hell or high water, we're always following our process, not reacting to events. I believe you've written a book or two about that process, right? You can, our, our listeners can find that and, uh, and follow along. Um, exactly. So, so uh, certainly the biggest macro story of, of 2023, in the US at least, has been the ongoing strength of the economy and the labor market, which is this above target inflation that continues, the Federal Reserve's heightening campaign in the face of all that. Um, we're fresh off of last week's meeting, which I've seen a few times people have referred to it as a hawkish pause. I guess that means that although the officials didn't increase interest rates last week, they indicated that they won't really be taking their foot off the gas anytime soon either. Um, so, Rich, big big picture question. What's what's your current read on the economy and inflation and the implications for, for Fed policy? Yeah. So, Nick, um, starting with the economy and then moving to the Fed, I think the interesting, most interesting thing about the economy right now is that there's a, uh, I, I would argue, a huge consensus that we are um, heading for a soft landing. I mean, there may, some people may think there's a hard landing, meaning recession or soft landing, um, meaning kind of the perfect outcome with not just, you know, growth that's slowing, but not slow to cause a recession, not fast enough to cause the Fed to tighten, sort of the Goldilocks type outcome. But either way, people are using the word landing, which I find very interesting because there's an increasing amount of data that's starting to say that the economy is is sort of accelerating. And um, uh, I, I, whether it's the Atlanta Fed GDP now, which is not a very good forecaster to the decimal point of GDP, but very good at trends. Right now, if I'm not mistaken, GDP now is tracking the current quarter at about 
four and a half or five percent GDP growth, um, wow. which is which is a big number. If you look at a, a increasing number of leading indicators, they're not strong in an absolute sense, but they are troughing. And and so you know the, the increasing amount of data is saying that landing isn't the right word here. Using the airline analogy or airport analogy, we, we should be talking about taking off, not about landing. But yet the consensus is about landing. So obviously that has implications in our minds for the Fed. Um, and and you know should we uh, declare that that inflation is under control and and declare victory in that battle versus inflation? I think it's very premature. To, to do that, not just premature, very premature, because um, you know we have a labor market which is likely to get tighter, I think, uh, as we go through uh, 2023 to 2024, because profits are starting to rev up. We have the Chinese economy, which is likely to get stronger, and you know, the, and the Fed's own data says, the Fed's own, own writings say that a lot of the disinflation we've seen has been attributable either directly or indirectly to energy prices falling. Well, you know, energy mm -hmm. prices are going up. So I think there's there's kind of a, a mix of data that is suggesting that the Fed may not only have to be higher for longer, but may still have to raise rates. Mm -hmm. And I think that would be kind of shocking to, uh, to most investors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's certainly not what's priced into futures markets and, no, and when you at look all. at stock valuations these days. Um, Rich, I, I studied economics in, in college. Um, I didn't see a model where the Fed raises interest rates by over five percentage points in 18 months and then the economy accelerates coming out of that. What, <laughs> yeah. uh, what gives? What's up with that? Yeah, I mean, that's so, that's so true, Nick. I mean, like, find me an economic textbook that says the Fed raises rates 500, 525 basis points and the economy starts accelerating. Yeah, I mean, there's no economic model out there that would predict this. So I, I want to preface my statement here by I'm not saying this time is different because of course that is the kiss of death. But I think we all should at least admit that there's something unique or odd going on here in one form or another in the economy. And one of the reasons that that I think that that um you know we had abnormally we had abnormal fall off in the economy because of the pandemic, then an abnormal boost because we all left our, our apartments or our homes and went out and did something, and you had monstrous monetary and fiscal policy. Then we had the, the, the hard comparisons relative to that network. You know, slowly but surely, we're getting back to something normal. But the, the thing that I think that most people are not looking at, look, the labor market eased a little bit. We know that. Everybody knows that. And uh, But the unemployment rate only went to 3.7%. I think the low is about 3.4. It went to 3.7%. And that was during a profits recession. S&P earnings growth was down about 10 to 15%. And all the unemployment rate did was go to 3.7%. Well, it's mm -hmm. our forecast at RBA that 2023 into 2024, earnings could be up 10 to 15%. I don't see how hiring is curtailed when profits are up. That, that's, mm -hmm. you know, that doesn't really fit the mold. So I think we're likely to see the labor market tighten again in 23-24 from its already tight uh, position. And you're seeing a little bit of that already where weekly initial jobless claims, which are uh, volatile, but, but they are a leading indicator, mm -hmm. uh, have started to strengthen again. And we just had the strongest last week. We had the strongest number since January. So it's not like the labor market is dying. It's not like a lot of the uh, uh, tightness that we've seen in various markets is going away. Rather, it could be getting tighter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it certainly supports a higher for longer interest rate stance exactly. by the Fed. What, what does that mean for investors? So I think a couple of things. 
number one, the number one question I get asked all the time is, is cash attractive? And and the obvious answer is, of course it is. I mean, that's that's how the Fed institutes monetary policy, right? The Fed raises short-term interest rates to make cash attractive, to disintermediate the entire economy. So when the Fed is raising rates, of course cash is going to be attractive. I mean, that's the whole point to monetary policy. The unfortunate thing, though, is that investors fall in love with cash. They say, wow, if I can get 5% or 6% out of cash, why would I look anywhere else? And and to use my line has been, and perhaps admittedly somewhat politically incorrect, and I apologize for this ahead of time, um, the, the attitude that you should have towards cash is you date cash, you never marry it. Okay. And and because it is a short-term instrument, and your time horizon should be short-term. And so at RBA, you know, we don't have cash. We have a lot of near cash. But we have been to continue to discuss what's the next step? Where is it going next in our in our portfolios? But of course, cash is attractive. So I think that one has to kind of admit that within the context of tightening of monetary policy. Number two, I think um, it, it points to valuations and that I think we are ending the Fed put, you know, originally called the Greenspan put, the, the more recently called the Fed put, where the Fed comes in and saves the day for the financial markets. Um, you got to remember, and everybody in this call should remember that, that investors, Wall Street loves liquidity. We are liquidity junkies. And so we're always advocating, the industry is always advocating for the Fed to ease. Right. We never want to see the Fed tighten because it's, it's very important to the financial sector's businesses to have a lot of liquidity. I think the past you know, 20, 30 years of Fed puts, I think that is coming to an end. It hasn't ended, but it's coming to an end. And I think investors have to realize the implications of that for valuations and um, with the inflation backdrop, how their portfolios should be changing versus where we've been over the last 10, 20, 30 years where we're going over the next 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think you've, you've described that to me as before as the, uh, the um, financial asset bubble is just another name for a, a bull market and, right. and um, certainly some, some wishful thinking from, from Wall Street about return to that right. era. Exactly. Um, so, so all this suggests a, a preference for, for real assets, things that, that are, are more tangible. Um, can you tell me about about that and where, where you see opportunities in, in real assets in, yeah. in the stock market? So so first, let me explain, Nick, for two seconds, why we think real assets and, and my kind of funny line is that investment themes are leaving, uh, you know, things like cute wiener dogs in the metaverse and heading towards real productive assets. And why? Why do we think that? Well, very, very quickly, we think globalization is contracting. And one has to remember that globalization was perhaps, I would argue it was, but, but let's leave that a little bit open there. I, I would argue that, that globalization was the number one reason you had secular disinflation and in turn secularly falling interest rates. And uh, because what globalization did was it constantly opened markets and we just got more and more and more competition. We were increasing competition around the world. And we all know when you increase competition, you put downward pressure on prices instead of upward pressure on prices. The exact opposite of monopoly, 180 degrees away from, from monopolistic situation. And so that resulted in the United States having uh, creating an ongoing massive trade deficits. And a lot of people have whined about the trade deficits in the past, but it really didn't matter because as long as globalization was increasing, 
you know, U.S. consumers were getting better and better and better quality goods at cheaper and cheaper and cheaper prices, we're, we all live happily ever after. However, we now have to understand the United States has this massive trade deficit, meaning, speaking hyperbolically for a second, we don't make anything anymore. Um, we're dependent on the rest of the world for virtually everything, and now globalization is contracting. So being dependent on the rest of the world for everything as globalization contracts is probably not a real good combination. So we think the investment themes along with that are shifting from these disinflationary, long time horizon, sexy technology type themes to more tangible, real productive assets. Things that either fight inflation or benefit from inflation, whether that be industrial stocks, material stocks, energy stocks, anything along those lines, uh, not just in the United States, but around the world, we think are gonna be the true long-term story. Mm -hmm. um, so certainly producers of commodities and, and industrial goods, do, do, you, do you, in your portfolios, do you own any commodities directly or ETFs that hold no, commodities we, or better to stick with the producers? We do have gold. I mean, if you consider one okay. considers that a commodity, we do have gold in, in some of our portfolios. The problem is, Nick, we use a lot of ETFs. And um, ETFs, you know, are not all created the same. A lot of them are very different legal structures. Um, people on this call may not may not be familiar with that, but there, there's various legal structures in ETFs. They're not all identical. And when you get to commodities, what very often happens is you start as a holder of a commodity ETF. Very often, not in all of them, I, I want to point that out, but in some of them, you end up uh, getting K-1 tax statements, mm -hmm. and it changes your tax liability. And not everybody loves that. So it can be very difficult for us dealing with individual investors to go down that route of, of all the commodities. That being said, we can still kind of mimic the exposure using either commodity equities or, or energy equities or some combination uh, of the above. Got it, okay. Um, I'd like to remind listeners to please submit questions in the chat there. We'll leave some time at the end of the call to uh, get to a few of those. Thank you to all our listeners who've already done so. Um, so, Rich, I mean, the, of course, the Fed has been a, a, a dominant theme this year. Um, another one has been the, all the excitement around artificial intelligence and, and the new business opportunities it seems poised to create. Mm -hmm. um, that's a lot in a lot of ways. That's that's expressed itself in this massive rally in big tech stocks. Those top seven companies in the S and P 500 that um, make up the I'm forgetting the number now, but the vast majority of the index's total return this year. Right. Um, right. That doesn't seem sustainable to me, a rally driven by just seven stocks. And, and uh, I guess, what, what, what does that, that narrow breadth of the market tell you? And, and, um, and uh, can that continue? Yeah, so, so there's two things that, that you brought up here, Nick. One is sort of the magnificent seven, as people have, have taken to calling them. And the other is, you know, is AI gonna change the economy? So let me do the AI changing the economy first. Of course it is. Of course AI is gonna change the economy. All new technologies, have an impact on the economy, right? I mean, my favorite example that I tell people about is the light bulb, which we hardly consider technology today, but it was a massive technological change because it turned the economy into a 24-hour economy, right? You can't have a graveyard shift if it's dark. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's, that doesn't work. So, so yes, of course it's gonna change the economy. However, you have to separate out the story from the investment opportunity. Right. So let's let's take the Internet as an example. So, you know, we were told during the tech bubble, 99 and 2000, that the Internet was going to change the economy. And it did. It certainly did. It changed it in ways that we never could have imagined 23 years ago at the peak of the tech bubble. Right. I mean, I, I'm I'm talking to you right now 
through my computer, through the internet. Now, nobody thought about that 23 years ago and, and the implications of that, that we could have this kind of webinar, um, uh, you know, 23 years ago. And, and so it's been massive in terms of the changes. However, if one bought NASDAQ a full year before the peak of the bubble, so we're talking about basically March of 99 instead of March of 2000, a full year before the peak of the bubble, it took you 11 years to break even. I strongly doubt that anybody is talking about AI today with the potential prospect of breaking even in 11 years. Of course not. Everybody thinks they're going to make a boodle today and it's, it's just going to be you know, fantastic. So I don't, I think what, what people, what investors have, what, what a lot of people have trouble deciphering is, is the story versus the investment opportunity. I am all over the AI story, but I don't think that presents a very good investment opportunity, largely because everybody is all over the AI story and we see the valuations and that tells you that it's, it's probably not going to be a, a good place to invest. Now, that may be true for the next two weeks. That's a good place to invest. I'm talking about the next two years, three years, whatever. It, it, I would argue it's not going to be a very good place to invest. Mm -hmm. um, the Magnificent Seven. And what about the Magnificent Seven? Look, I, I view it um, very simplistically here. Are there really only seven growth stories in the entire world? Is that really what's going on? And of course, the answer to that is no. There's a lot more than seven growth stories in the entire world, right? That's, it, it's kind of silly to argue that, that, that there's only seven growth companies and you have to hold these seven stocks. And as you alluded to, Nick, these seven stocks have contributed 70% of year-to-date S&P performance. In fact, I saw something today that said the Magnificent Seven has a larger market cap than Japan, China, France, and the UK combined. I mean, this is silly. This is wow. absolutely silly stuff. So, so you know, you can think you're investing globally, but what you're getting is the Magnificent Seven. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. So, so I view this as sort of a seesaw. And on one side of the seesaw, we have the Magnificent Seven. And on the other side of the seesaw, you have this monstrous opportunity set for growth opportunities that nobody cares about. And so our firm is clearly on that other side of the seesaw, looking for these other growth opportunities that people are myopically not watching, not looking at. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's hard not to get excited about something like NVIDIA and the AI opportunity when they're giving guidance the way they are. And, and that's, that's where those, that's showing up in the numbers already. I yeah, think a lot but, of the, but Nick, the... you know, I would, I, I'm sorry to interrupt. I don't mean to interrupt, yeah. but I would caution people. Like somebody said to me the other day, this has never happened before, right? They said like, when have you ever seen a situation like NVIDIA with sales up so much? The answer is it happens all the time. This is nothing unique. Go look at deep cyclical stocks and what happens to their sales and earnings growth when the cycle starts to turn. NVIDIA being a semiconductor stock has always been a deep cyclical stock. Yes, they have a secular trend that is up, but they're wildly cyclical. And so you have a wildly cyclical stock putting up big numbers, but everybody's telling me the economy is landing. That makes zero sense. Makes absolutely zero sense. If you believe that NVIDIA is experiencing this huge burst, you can't say the economy's landing because this is a deep cyclical company historically, as are other deep cyclical companies. So I don't even think it's so unique. I mean, Nick, I, I know I said I'm not going to talk about individual names, but I'll give you I'll give you I'll give you a good one. Caterpillar Tractor's earnings growth has been stronger, faster, 
than Microsoft's in nine of the last 10 quarters. Wow. My guess is yeah. not one person on this call knows that. Um, yeah, I mean, when I, when I think about the, kind of how, how, if you missed that 200% run in NVIDIA this year, how, how do you benefit from AI? And the answer is sort of, it's gonna take a little bit longer than, than NVIDIA, but it's probably gonna be in a lot of those old economy type companies, like maybe a Caterpillar or Deer, which exactly. are, are, exactly. are using AI to create these self-driving tractors and other machinery and predictive agriculture, um, or something like a FedEx or EPS, which uses AI to make their package sorting and routes more efficient. And, and it's all these businesses that are not really technology or AI businesses that are gonna use that technology to make their operations yeah. more efficient and effective. And that's something that's gonna take several years to actually show up in the numbers. Yeah. Um, and I have, so, I have no uh, problem with that. My packages still end up getting lost. So <laughs> that's just a personal comment. <laughs> um, thank you for everybody who's submitting questions. There's a lot of good ones coming in. Um, Rich, this is one that, this question from Neil, um, which relates to something we were, we were talking about uh, earlier, you and I, um, and that's about China, which mm -hmm. um, and I know you as a firm, you're, you're, this relates to the weight of the Magnificent Seven and, and your view there, but um, I know that you're, you're, you're relatively underweight the U.S. compared to how you normally are. Mm -hmm. um, China, China is probably um, your, your largest non-consensus position these days. Could, could, can you walk us through the, the preference on uh, stocks outside the U.S. today and, and then China specifically sure. with the, what the case is there? Sure. So, Nick, when we started RBA in 2009, uh, legit, one of the reasons we started RBA was we, we thought we were entering one of the biggest bull markets of our careers. And, and, you know, we weren't brain surgeons. We just said, eh, probably a good time to start a firm. Yeah. And, and, but that was hardly consensus back then, right? 2009, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. People's attitude was the U.S. was no place to invest. And that, um, uh, you know, it was imprudent to invest in the United States. So you wanted to invest in emerging markets. And, and the data show that, by the way. I mean, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch has data that shows in 2009, private client uh, equity allocations were 39%. And uh, the beta was about 0.75 in their clients' portfolios. Well, today, um, that 39% uh, is now 60% equity allocation. And the beta has gone from 0.75 to 1.2. So it's pretty clear that, that private client risk preferences have changed very, very dramatically. And along with that, you now hear people saying, you know, where would you invest other than the United States? Well, whereas we had 80% of our equity exposure, you know, 12 years ago or 13 years ago in the United States, uh, we're now down to about 45 or 50% in the United States. And yes, China is one of the places. I mean, we're overweight Europe, we're overweight Japan. China is one of them, but as you pointed out, it's it's very non-consensus. Now, I, I don't want to get into the politics. We all understand the politics of China, and I'm not suggesting this is a long-term story. I just don't think the politics that people are talking about are going to manifest in the next five to ten months. Uh, five to ten years, yeah, I think we have a whole different story to talk about, but five to ten months, I don't think anything's really going to change. Um, you know, there's a lot of drama going on right now, but I don't think anything's really going to change. And the reason why I don't think it's going to change is China, China's economy is still way too dependent on the rest of the world. They're a big exporter. And I don't think the Chinese have any intention of cutting off their nose despite their face, uh, you know, putting their own economy into depression as nobody wants to trade with them. And you end up with global depression in, in that case. And uh, I don't think they, they want to do that. Um, but you know, from a count, from a cyclical point of view, 
you know, we expected their post-COVID experience to be similar to that we saw in the West. It started out that way, and then it faded, obviously, mm -hmm. as we all know. But yet what's interesting is that the government has not stopped stimulating, and the central bank, I think it was last week or maybe the week before, cut, cut rates again. Um, so we all know the adage in the United States, don't fight the Fed. Um, you know, why fight the, the People's Bank of China? I, I don't mm -hmm. see the reason to do that. I think there's opportunities. Uh, it looks like Chinese corporate profits are starting to rev up. And importantly, we're talking about commodities. Commodities have caught a bid. Uh, you know, a broader range of commodities is starting to catch a bid. So somebody out there on the margin is demanding uh, more and more commodities, which may be a signal that uh, maybe China's economy isn't exactly down and out and gone the way some people like to portray it. Um, I'm not saying it's long-term healthy. I'm not, um, you know, admittedly, they have many, many problems. We all know them, though. And because we all know them, it is reflected in the valuations. China sells at one-third of NASDAQ's valuation. Wow. So NASDAQ's the favorite. Everybody hates China. It's a third of the valuation, and their fundamentals may be starting to improve. So I think that's, that's a reasonable cyclical investment idea. Again, separating five to 10 months from five to 10 years, uh, you know, five to 10 years, I'm not the biggest China bull at all. Mm -hmm. Got it. Um, so shifting over to, to the fixed income side of the portfolio, um, we're coming off this 40-year bull market in bonds, higher for longer ahead of us. What does that all mean for, for fixed income investing? Yeah, you know, Nick, I think fixed income is um, in the early stages of a major metamorphosis. And the reason I, I say that with, with uh, you know, such terms is that we have to admit that the last, you know, 34 years, it's been pretty easy to be a fixed income investor. You know, one could have been the worst fixed income money manager and gotten bailed out by the secular fall in interest rates. I said, you know, secular disinflation from expanding globalization leading to secularly falling interest rates makes every, you know, it makes it a major bull market. And, and so I think we have to be careful if that backdrop is changing, what's going to happen in fixed income. And, and so I think that the fixed income market overall is going to have to become more actively managed. Um, you're not going to buy and hold won't work anymore. And most fixed income strategies have been predicated on buy and hold. Now I realize every fixed income money manager and his brother says um, that they're active managers. But if you look at the data, active management and fixed income barely means moving. I mean, it's like, it's like watching a snail move. And, and the reason that happens is because the fixed income markets are still dealer markets. They are, they're not exchange markets, they're dealer markets. They are highly illiquid. And so it's very difficult to be an active manager in fixed income. Well, enter stage left, fixed income ETFs. We've been managing fixed income ETFs now for 13 years, 14 years, whatever it is. And um, we think they're a major, major innovation that people really don't talk enough about. And um, uh, we think that, that they're going to be very crucial in terms of managing fixed income portfolios uh, going forward. They allow managers, they allow investors to be true, actively managed, fixed, to have true, actively managed fixed income portfolios which I think is fantastic. I think it's going to be great. Yeah, for, for pretty low fees. Exactly. Um, Rich, how, how are you positioned in, in fixed income ETFs now? So we have, we have a barbell, Nick. We have, um, very, we have some very long-term treasuries, basically roughly centered on about 20 years. Um, and, and obviously that, that gets a lot of attention. But what people are missing is that's balanced out to a large extent 
by a um, a whole set of short-term fixed income. I mentioned before that we have a lot of near cash. We don't really have that much cash. We have a lot of near cash uh, in the portfolio. And so it's balanced out. So our duration is a hair longer than the ag. Although if you just look at the, the 20 year plus, you'd say, oh my God, what are you guys doing? But realistically, the, the portfolio's duration is the hair longer than, than the ag. And the, the beauty of our strategy is that we've managed to get, because of this barbell, we've managed to get um, investment grade type yield without the credit risk. And you might say, well, why not just get investment grade? Well, the answer is that we all know spreads are pretty narrow right now. And so when spreads are narrow, there's little incentive to take credit risk. Um, so what we can do is we can actually construct a portfolio that gets that, that credit-like yield, that investment grade credit-like yield, I should point out, but without taking the credit risk. Um, and I think that's actually pretty cute. I like that. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and yeah, certainly a plethora of, of ETFs for, for our listeners out there to, uh, to um, uh, play that. Um, so in the last couple, last couple of minutes here, I just want to get to a few more um, listener questions. Lee, Lee asks about your views on the energy sector and points out that, mm -hmm. that um, a lot of investors are, are underinvested in that sector. Um, looking at the very long term, I understand the, the near term case commodity prices, oil going up. Um, China plays into that as well. Mm -hmm. um, looking at a longer time frame than that, is 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 the the traditional oil and gas focus energy sector is that going to continue to decrease in importance as time goes on, or or does that have more legs than than uh, some of the 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 critics have so, said? So so I think my answer to that is going to be a very unsatisfying both. Um, okay. I think it I think it it's it's going to have decreasing importance in the economy but it's going to happen at a much, much slower pace than people think, right? We can't just turn our economy into a green economy in, in a year or two years or five years. It's just physically impossible. We just can't do it. You know, so, you know, uh, is it going to become greener through time? Of course it will. And it's already happening. You know, the, the line I like to say to people is that I, I don't think it, uh, it'll surprise anybody to know that California is the number one state for for solar energy production. Uh, it might surprise people to know that this, the number two state for solar energy production is Texas. Hmm. So what's interesting here is that we've got a political dichotomy where people are trying to figure out is it brown energy or green energy? That's a political dichotomy. The economy is not making that distinction. The economy is moving them with them together. If people need energy, they need energy. Who cares where it comes from? And um, so I, I think investors, I always argue investors should not listen to politicians. I think this is another clear one. The economy has moved on. It is a both. It is an and there, not an or. Again, mm -hmm. through time, of course, we will get greener. If for no other reason, we'll start running out of carbon-based uh, uh, supplies. But, but you know, of course, we, I, and I, I don't understand why anybody would want that to happen long-term you know, unless you're in the energy industry, I get that, but who, who necessarily wants to leave a dirtier planet? I don't think anybody really wants to do that. The question is, can we, can we, you know, wean ourselves off carbon? I don't think you can do it half as quickly as, as some people think. Um, but at the same time, we shouldn't be using my light bulb analogy again. You don't want to be the candle maker fighting the light bulb. That's a losing proposition. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Richard, we spoke about China a good amount. Alina asks your thoughts on India and investing in that market. Do you have any thoughts on India? Yeah, so um, we don't have any major positions in India. I think we do have some exposure there, but no major positions. Um, 
India's India is always interesting. There, there's two always two problems in in India that the way people like to talk about it. Number one is their infrastructure. You got to realize that China has a massive infrastructure. They have spent years and years and years building a world-class infrastructure. They made the best infrastructure in the entire world to support their manufacturing industrial base. Something that the West for some reason has not understood that that's critically important to competitiveness, that infrastructure is the key to competitiveness. Some, some I don't understand why the West has not understood that. Uh, India doesn't really have a great infrastructure. They're starting to spend, which is interesting, um, but they don't have a great infrastructure. Number two, they have a huge, um, uh, educational disparity in India, which which to some extent may limit uh, the potential workforce. So you know you could say human capital, uh, uh, physical capital, they need to invest in. I think they're trying to do that. I think they're starting to do it. Um, but the notion that they can just replace China and um, you know I, I don't think is quite correct. I don't I don't think that's going to work. But you know, are, is it interesting? Yeah, I think it depends on on you know where you're exactly investing but but you always have to remember that infrastructure and education are two issues in china or in india rather in, in india got it yeah um all right great rich um so i, I just want to end with a, a slightly broader question here which I, I rich i know you've been a, a lecturer at nyu stern and and uh, spoken to, to mba students there gregory asks um i'm going to broaden his question a little bit he asks about how you would explain the the outlook to for uh, the economy financial markets to a group of university freshmen and sophomores. So I'm gonna broaden that. What, what, what kind of um, investing advice would you give to somebody who's maybe around 18, 19, 20 years old and has this very oh, long time frame you know, today? Nick, I think, I think the way you just asked that question is fantastic. I think that if you're 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, wherever, you know, in, in, that, ball, in that ballpark, I think um, every, you know, those, anybody that age should be saving as much as you possibly can and thinking extraordinarily long term, right? Let's let's be honest. If you're 25, you know you're not going to retire for 40 years, right? So the important thing is to save. Worry a little bit less about what the return's going to be next week. I think the worst thing that a person of that age can do is trade a lot. I know there's there's all these forces out there that encourage them to trade. Um, when I was at Merrill Lynch, we wrote repeatedly that the probability of losing money goes down as you extend your time horizon. So as you go from a day to a week, to a month, to a quarter, to a year, to three years, to five years, to 10 years, to 20 years, every step along that way, your probability of losing money goes down as you extend your time horizon. And the reason why is because as you extend your time horizon, you're investing for fundamentals and you're not investing based on noise. Remember, Nick, early on, I said that we are not an event-driven firm. That's a what I just said is a reflection of our philosophy at our firm, that we don't want to be reacting to noise in the marketplaces. And so it's important to know what's going on. It's always important to know what's going on. Um, I think uh, people like like you, Nick, and Barron's do a very good job of that. I'm not Thank trying to, to, but but I think I think the worst thing that somebody that 18, 19 years old can do is think that trading is the way to build wealth. When you trade intraday, the statistics show it's like flipping a coin. It's 50-50. Mm -hmm. So in a bull market, yeah, maybe you look really smart. In a bear market, you don't. But there's a difference between saving and investing and trading. And I think anybody at that age should be saving and investing and not trading. 
That's great. Yeah, I'd rather get rich slowly than get poor quickly. Uh, exactly. In trading. Um, that's all the time we have. Rich, thank you so much for being here. Thank you to our listeners for, for tuning in. Um, I want to remind everyone, please join us again tomorrow. Barron's Managing Editor, Darren Fonda, will speak with Ashish Shah, who's Chief Investment Officer of Public Investing at Goldman Sachs Asset Management. Should be an interesting conversation. Thank you again, Rich, for coming. Thank you, everyone, for listening, Thanks, and have a great day. Great. Thank you. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.